sorry to have failed for Tuesday. You know, just it has to do with the way the meds work. So it's sort of hit and miss. Um, I hope that you have made some progress in approaching Joyce. Have you read the novel? Yes. Okay, what do you think? Very good. <laughs> great book. It is actually a great book. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it helps, actually, if you have... If, you are of Irish extraction, if you know. Um, I had a great uncle that taught at Clongatness. Mm. So, yeah. Wow. Uh, well, he was a Jesuit, and that's what Irish Jesuits do. And, uh, I mean, he didn't know Joyce, but I mean, he taught at the same outfit. And uh, it's one of the most important novels of the 20th century. And you may have noticed that there's a certain connection to Nietzsche. <laughs> it is actually dripping in it. I mean, it's, it's like a tea bag full of water. I mean, it's absolutely saturated in Nietzsche. If you have not paid your dues and read Nietzsche, this is going to look like a very new and unprecedented set of ideas, which it is not. All right? it's, a, it's a much more aesthetically refined version of Nietzschean aestheticism, but at the end of the novel, Stephen Dedalus becomes a priest of art and life, not a priest of religion. He has switched his ideas about the sacred from this world, from the next world to this world. He has turned his back on the usual markers of human identity. Family, country, religion. He is an alien, and he has alienated himself spiritually even before he leaves Ireland. Is this why um, just like scholars would be hesitant to plug Nietzsche into the nationalist frameworks because the logical extension of his thought means the rejection of nationalism? Well, be careful. The logical expansion of Nietzsche's thought is the thing that Nietzsche is least interested in. Okay. <laughs> 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 All right. So Nietzsche, remember that Nietzsche, one of, the great, one of his great lines, I think it's from Beyond Good and Evil, he says, I write in order to be misunderstood. <laughs> Now that's a messed up idea. It's, it really is perfect for Nietzsche, though. So when you say uh, that Nietzsche's anti-nationalist, Nietzsche's actually a wild card. You could match him with nearly anything you want to. Nietzsche has been invoked for, I mean, a wide variety of contradictory things, almost all of which Nietzsche would have hated because he is full of contempt for our species. <laughs> Well, no, remember that it's the opposite of Jesus. Jesus says that every individual soul has an infinite worth. Nietzsche says, actually, no. Um, virtually no soul has any worth at all. And the few that are worth anything have nothing to do with Christianity. So in, a, in any given century, there are half a dozen people that are worth anything. The rest, step, killing them is like stepping on ants. And he has exactly the same moral uh, guilt Right, because killing 
valueless, worthless ants. Uh, for him, it's like killing people. It doesn't make any difference. So um, when we try and get Nietzsche off the hook for the Second World War and the First World War, I'm afraid that that's not, that's, that's not reasonable. Yes, Nietzsche would have hated the Nazis, or would have hated the Junkers, it's everybody. But that the Nazis and Junkers employed this, and misinterpreted and misunderstood this egregiously, yeah. But it's not an accident, it's Hitler's favorite writer. Now, not all of Nietzsche's influence was destructive or warlike. He had a huge influence on thinking about aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Remember that Stephen Dedalus is working his way through Aristotle's poetics mm -hmm. and also Aquinas' writing on aesthetics. Mm -hmm. So he's looking back at the tradition and finding these aesthetic ideas unacceptable because in the case of Aquinas, they gesture at God and in the case of, of Aristotle, they gesture at some nameless platonic perfection, which doesn't exist either. So he seemed very to be giving high, high praise to these aesthetic ideas at first. Of course, um, because aesthetics is the way out. But he's going to use them like a Wittgensteinian ladder. He's going to climb up and throw them away. As he says, I need a new language to describe the artistic experience which I am undergoing. There we go. And consider the possibility. It's not ex it's not exhaustive, but it's also not a mistake, I would guess. Consider the possibility that one way of thinking about religion is that it's a kind of language with which we talk about the most important things. It gives us a vocabulary and a palette of images rather than a palette of colors. With which you talk about things like, yeah, Cain and Abel. Right? So, what that means is, is that it's very important for any human being in the process of becoming human to learn at least one language. That's your, that's your connection to transcendence. And one of the things you'll find is that whatever your first religious language is, is the way in which you think about <laughs> transcendent things. You can't help it. It just has to do with the nature of your first language. Now, I'm a Catholic Christian, but I have a near, uh, near native fluency in Platonism, which is another kind of language. All right. Here's the deal, though. Um, while it's good to know multiple languages, um, you're always going to prefer your first language. All right. And um, if you don't have at least one language with which to talk about the sacred or the transcendent, uh, you turn into Kafka. <laughs> you wake up one morning and you're a bug. <laughs> That's actually what happens, right? Because the only way you can have the Sonderstellung, the special position in the world that separates you from everything else in nature, uh, which is what keeps you from being a cockroach, um, that's called religion. You know? What would Nietzsche's language be? Oh, Nietzsche's language would be the inverse of Christianity, right? So it's, I mean, he, he is derivative in the sense that whatever he's for is what Jesus was against, all right? In that respect, he's, he's a radical thinker, but not an especially original one. 
I mean, the stuff that he does think of that's original, like the eternal return, turns out to be stupid. <laughs> no, Nietzsche is arguably the greatest destructive philosopher that ever lived. The problem is, when he goes on offense, when he goes on the affirmative, he's laughably bad. All right? I mean, he thinks he's a great poet. Have you looked at the poets that begin that, the poems that begin that book? I mean, that's God's revenge. I'll even the score. <laughs> I'll let him think he's an artist. <laughs> All right. So now Joyce is looking for the possibility of creating himself. In other words, Joyce is turning the world into an artwork because he's turning himself into an artwork. In other words, he's collapsing the distinction between life and art. It's just almost an autobiography of, yeah, interesting. That's right. And actually, autobiography is a fascinating genre. I mean, I've often thought that I, you know, I weren't so old and sick. Um, one of the things I would like to do is give a course on autobiography in the West, starting with Augustine. All right. The title would be, Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> and then we'll chart the changes in the conception of the self or the subject. I mean, you can take that through Goethe. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of people put in there. So, this is an autobiographical novel. I don't think it would make the test for autobiography, but it is patently drawn from his own life. So he moves from his family to Clongowes to Belvedere to Trieste. He leaves Ireland and is gone. How's it start? Moo cow. Yes. Cow. <laughs> a nice little story. boy named Baby Taku. It's him at two years old. This is Baby Talk. Mm -hmm. huh. All right. So, in other words, this is a portrait, but it's a portrait in time, not in space. This is a word portrait. And because it's not extended in space, but it isn't extended in time, he's going to start at the beginning of his use of language, because that's what's going to liberate him. Remember when he's uh, a young grammar school kid, and they're saying the litany to Our Lady, and he wonders, how can hands be ivory? Which is the kind of question that an eight-year-old is going to wonder, looking at the liturgy, saying, hands of ivory. <laughs> what's that mean, right? Um, what he's doing is interrogating the religious context, the religious things around him, and finding them wanting. But at the same time, they are formative, particularly in the way he uses language. All right. That person says God, and the English person says God, and God knows which one is which. <laughs> yes, something along that line. Yeah. It's, it's not as interesting as the, as the argument over the tundish, right? <laughs> right, the, the, the funnel. But the idea is, of course, um, what he's doing is a very interesting example. A tun dish. A tun is a, is a hogshead of wine or beer. And a dish is, of course, a dish. But in this case, the idea is that it's a funnel that allows you to put, uh, take one material and put it into another container, which is what the whole book is about. All right, Taking this Irish Catholic stuff and pouring it into a Nietzschean artist. Yeah. I feel like at some points it was almost as if it was in defense of Catholicism because how well it was written, especially with the whole sermon of, of hell and 
all this other. And when did that any of that become Catholic doctrine? Excuse well, me, this is completely imaginary. I mean, there's a great defense of Catholicism if I could find any portion of Catholicism which endorsed any of the things that he was claiming about hell. Well, <laughs> well like, I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, he was bringing, like, Aquinas into it a lot and, and all that, but I feel like, I mean, this ideas of... Scared the bejesus out of me. Yeah. <laughs> this is something you want to avoid. Here's something that you should think about. Oh, this is worth doing. This will be part of your musical education. You want to hear the most Catholic, well, arguably the most Catholic piece of music ever written. It's Verdi's Requiem. Okay. And the part that you want, not the whole thing, it's called the Dies Iria. Yeah, you know it. Right? Yes. <laughs> right. I don't know what God's final judgment is going to look like. I do know what it's going to sound like. <laughs> and whatever it is, I would stay away from that. Uh-huh. I mean, have you ever heard the Dies Iria from that? I mean, uh, God is irritated. You can see that. That's where you know, Iria is a source of our word irritation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, that, to me, is deeply Catholic in the sense that it's so... so overflows the boundaries of every possible construction, every possible limit. I mean, you know, you just get overwhelmed by this tidal wave of music and pissed off God. And that's an amazing thing. If you haven't heard it, if any of you not heard the reason, it's worth actually downloading just for the Diaseria and whatever is involved in God's judgment. I mean, it sounds bad. Right. How do you spell it? How do you, how do you spell it? Oh, go ahead, play it. Yeah. I think this is it. Well, we'll know in a moment. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Actually, matter of fact, the idea is as unmistakable as I can imagine. I've had Protestant friends come to me and said, this makes me feel Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, forget metaphysics. (laughs) No, music is is the ultimate argument. I mean, I think if I find it much more convincing than metaphysics. (laughs) Right, I mean, you listen to that and I don't see what answer you can give. I would like to be on the, I don't want to be on the receiving end of whatever that sounds yeah. like. <laughs> right. I mean, he doesn't have to exactly have to tell you, which is kind of what makes it even frank, more frightening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a great story that Cardinal Ratzinger, the later Benedict XVI, was, went to a concert, a Bach concert, I believe, with a friend, and they sat through it, and at the end, uh, he turned, Ratzinger turned to his friend and said, God exists. Anyone who has heard this music cannot disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, uh, I can't argue with that. Um, there's no arguing with music, which is one of the nice things about it. You can't do logic chopping on it. Mm-hmm. What convinces me also is certain kinds of uh, physical experience. If you've ever actually gone to the Grand Canyon, that will shut you up. No, I mean, you look at that, 
and you get a sense of how, how big you really are and roughly how important you are in the grand scheme of things. And uh, it redefines the word big. I mean, no, you, uh, the stuff you've seen on screens or, or photo, no, no, no. When you go there, it is absolutely, we would just shut your mouth. No one should ever talk again. Good God. I mean, out, completely outside the human scale. And uh, yeah, I think that's the best argument for God's existence. It's not an argument at all. Yeah. I think Carmina Burana also bears. Well, yeah, except that's exactly the opposite, written by defrocked monks, for God's sake. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, Carmina Burana <laughs> leading to the Black Mass. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, it's a powerful piece. Uh, I, I mean, don't it's know. like the homily from here. Well, in some ways it is, yeah, because it's, oh, it's very dubiously Christian. I mean, I know that hell is bad and all, but where you've got the details, Father, I'm not entirely yeah. convinced. Unless you've actually been there. Dante. Right? And uh, right. Virgil and Dante get yeah. to do that, but not you. All right? This sounds to me like one of those hellfire sermons that I expect from a TV te you know, televangelist. All right? And uh, look, I don't want Catholic priests telling people, look, hell is really great. You're not going to have a problem there. But this is a little bit over the top with the, you know, the worms eating your eyes and the in and out and the fire and the smoke. I mean, it, the thing is, that it is something I can imagine Ignatius doing. Yes, well, okay. But that doesn't guarantee it's sin. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you remember that, I mean, in the, uh, in the, uh, what is it, the, uh, this is a senior moment. In his writing about, uh, are, are you referring to the white is black? Yeah, I was just about to get to exactly that. I was thinking, well, that seems healthy. <laughs> well, no, you see, the problem is what that leads to is uh, there's no pedophilia here. Yeah, yeah that's true. right. Don't trust us. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a problem. That's a damn serious problem. And so that's where the white is black thing sort of starts to worry me. Yet I can see the point. I think if you think if that sermon was given on Sundays, that would be way more effective than the average one. I think. I bet it would. Hundreds of people would be going to confession <laughs> right after. Yeah. Uh, and I bet a lot of kids would start, would start listening to death metal. Represent that. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you were talking about the Protestants a little bit either, and I, I remember one of my favorite quotes from page 200 where he says, you do not intend to become a Protestant. He said, I lost the faith. I had not lost self-respect. Which is a great What kind of liberation would that be to forsake an absurdity which is logical and coherent and yeah. embrace one which is illogical and <laughs> That's a really sharp one. I mean, that's just deadly focus. Oh, Joyce is good. I mean, you gotta like that. I mean, the guy's got a razor sharp wit. Um, here's something worth thinking about. Do you remember the time, I mean, remember the passage where he has a dispute about aesthetics with his schoolmate, Heron? Heron on a palace in the middle, sort of, maybe in the first half, but it's more towards the middle. Uh, Heron, who's one of his schoolmates, likes, uh, is it, not, not Byron, it's uh, Tennyson. Oh, right. right. Mm -hmm. And Joyce's Tennyson is inferior. He's just a mere rhymester, whereas Byron, Byron can write, which is Byron not... Byron's an chain. Right, right, chain. yeah. Well, he did have a long-term relationship with his half-sister, which was a former... <laughs> right. The incestuous part of that day they had a problem with. 
minor details. Well, again, once you don't have any moral rules applied to you, there's really no reason why you need to have any moral rules applied to you. Uh, Byron was a piece of... I mean, there's a great story about Byron. He entered some fashionable cafe in London with his half-sister, who was also his uh, lover. And uh, the entire room went silent. And then immediately, without making any noise, everybody got up and walked out. Wow. They knew who Byron was. They knew the incestuous relationship. Wow. I mean, they just, you are not part of organized society anymore. Mm. Uh, which was kind of hard on Byron because he was a party animal, but this is a bridge too far for um, the Londoners who knew about it. Um, yeah. So all this, this talk about aesthetics, I'm tempted to say that Joyce or Daedalus had a genuine conversion experience uh, at the end of book three, um, and that could be a reference to something that uh, Joyce himself experienced. I don't, can't know. Impossible to say, you're right. Here's the problem that I have with it. Um, it might be one variety of conversion experience. It's not one with which I am familiar. Here's the problem. I honest I, I candidly find it hard to see to imagine someone having a conversion experience that was driven by fear. Mm -hmm. In other words, it can't be a push, it has to be a pull. You have to see the summum bonum and see, well, look, I'm going this way. Uh, being pushed by the summum malum is not enough. Mm. All right. Re yeah, okay, that's a good point. Regardless of if it's a genuine conversion experience or not, by the first word of the fourth chapter, it's a complete rejection. That's done. Yeah, we're done. That's exactly right. He's turned Catholicism into an aesthetic religion. Yes. And he's disappointed in it for not being aesthetic enough. Well, um... <laughs> As Christian sects go, it is more aesthetic. No, yeah, it is. We have better rituals than nearly everybody. Yeah, they, 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 all his complaints are like, well, why, could this be a little bit better aesthetic? Right, yeah. In other words, um, it's religion that's been drained of its moral and uh, epistemological content. All right. Now, it's an art form. And... That means that there are as many artists as there are devotees. And so there's no one unified doctrine. Everybody, every man is his own prophet. Now, did you notice early on when he uh, gets thrown, he's, he's at school, and one of his stupid friends pushes him in the cesspool, right, so when he gets that dunk and you know, he's sick as a result, okay. Um, one way of looking at that is an inverted sort of baptism. Hmm. Uh, he's going the wrong way. Instead of having his sins cleansed, he's getting filthy. And instead of it part, uh, uh, doing it to his soul, it does it to his body. This is not accidental foreshadowing. All right? Yeah. And of course, then Father Dolan beats him mm -hmm. because he's a sadistic jerk. 
And then he had, then his father and the headmaster laugh about it. Because he can't see what the church is teaching. That's right. His sight has been taken away. Mm. All the stuff is so bad. <laughs> Nothing happens accidentally in a book like this. Mm. All right, it's well constructed. Oh, and then they lift him up as a hero because he stood up to the religious authorities. There we go. Even then he knew. All right. So uh, what this is, is in some ways a journey motif, but it's the inverse of Augustine's journey. Instead of going from, to the church, he's going from it, yeah. Sorry, I was reading this and I was thinking about the journey motif. Um, okay. It's kind of like, I almost thought of it as like a 2.0 journey motif, because mm -hmm. instead of going back to like king and country and your home and your loved ones, He's going away from them. Right. Um, and, like, it was... Um, ready go. Okay, so from, like, the ease of the, like, the beginning of childhood and everything, but his hardship, he goes, like, towards it instead of away from it. Um, and instead of, like... And then, but he goes through it, and then the liberation of these sufferings, which was traditionally the gods, it's himself. Uh, towards the end, when he leaves, finally, it's like he writes his own fate, almost... So like kind of a... He writes his own epitaph. Yeah. Because he's dying to one kind of life and being born to another. In mm -hmm. other words, this is, of course, a rebirth and uh, being born again. Mm -hmm. So he's taken off the chrysalis. He's turned from a caterpillar into a butterfly, which is what, what makes him deadless. He's found his way out of the labyrinth. You know? Yeah, it's, it's not a death itself. It's a death of the world and a rebirth it's it's the death of, of the world into which he was born and the self into which he was born. And it's the beginning of his self-creation. That's, that's the whole thing with the labyrinth, I'm guessing, is his way out, his journey out of that's exactly being right. trapped into... And Stephen, his first name is from the first Christian martyr. Hmm. Stephen Dedalus. He's a martyr, but against rather than for Christianity, he's the first one. And uh, that's the way out of the labyrinth. Hmm. We give up on politics, we give up on religion, we give up on the things with the family, we give up on the things that most people find, give meaning to life, and instead it's all going to be art and it's all about him. His art is literary, he writes, but the artwork is himself and his own life. So he's going to turn the world and his life into art. And that's the only redemption that we can possibly get. So yep. the, the labyrinth is the religion that he was born into? It's Ireland, it's Catholicism, and it's his family. And it's also his schooling. Yep. Well, um, Daedalus is also the person who made the wings to escape his prison right. and so but Icarus went a little too far yeah. right. All right. so Daedalus is the solver of problems Daedalus can generate the labyrinth because he designed it but he also knows the way out right. and of course invoking a Greek rather than a Christian man mm -hmm. tells you what you need to know here right. now he has a tremendously neurotic view of sex, so he patronizes these prostitutes and is full of guilt. 
when he discharges that guilt and goes to confession, you know, he hears about the dangers of hell and all that, and makes a good confession. If you're right, if it had stopped there at the end of book three, you'd have one of the great Christian novels of the 20th century. But, all right. The first line of chapter four. Right, he's, he's going out, and uh, he is looking for spiritual discipline, and the priesthood appeals in some ways, but he finds it unsatisfying. All right. And he has that epiphany of the girl on the strand. And there's all that avian bird symbolism. This is the new Holy Spirit. Actually, it's the profane spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's cousin. Right? He sees the girl on the strand. And somehow, that image allows his soul to take flight. And that liberation from the body and liberation from Ireland and from his family and from his school and from Catholicism allows him to cut the ties that connect him to the world he was born into. Notice how he is even no longer willing to participate in political or ethical movements. And when he's asked to sign a peace petition, and he says, no, I'm not going to sign. He has no moral commitments, and he's not interested in the undergraduate committee against bad things. All right, so he says, no, I'm too cynical for that. I'm not signing it. Well, what does it harm him to sign? Nothing. What harm does it do to pray at his mother's deathbed? But he's not doing that either. All right. Uh, he is very radical in his rejection. The person he talks with in the last chapter reminded me a great deal of Pascal. Yes, exactly right. He mentions Pascal. He does mention Pascal. Yeah. And how he Is it great to have read the things you need in order to read them? <laughs> and when he says Pascal, you actually know what they're talking about. Without that, I mean, again, you can't participate. But you're actually right on that. Both of you that sounds like Pascal. Yes, that's exactly right. You got that correct. Um, the other guy, Fran, Fran, he says that he says that Pascal is. Well, he doesn't. I forget the he word. Doesn't like he Pascal. Uses. Yeah, essentially, Pascal wouldn't like Pascal. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't in a way. So he's satisfied with himself. I mean, and look, he's a pretty good guy who's obsessed with the fact that he thinks he's going to hell. I mean, you know, lighten up, Blaze. I mean, you're a really good guy. You're pretty saintly. You don't have to be like this. It's a. He didn't support. He supported Jansenism. That's what they yeah. were saying. The thing, and that's true for Pascal as well. That's right. Who supported Jansenism? No, oh. Pascal. Pascal. Did. Right. Okay. And then he came back, but it was declared heresy. Okay, right. 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 Because uh, Orthodox Catholicism isn't tough enough. So the uh, uh, no, the uh, what do you call them? The Port Royal types, the Jansenists. So they wanted three Lents a year. So for 120 days, you have to fast and all that kind of jazz. Because 40 just isn't enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, note the aesthetic con conflict that he has with uh, Heron. Here's why you note that. Heron is going to get lifted out of this book and is going to become the hero in Kubrick's Clockwork Orange. Mm. 
That's who he is. Alex is Herod. Why? Alex is an esteem, and so is Herod. And Alex is characterized by arguments over aesthetics that lead to violence, which is exactly what happens with Joyce. That's first Burgess and then Kubrick letting him know that they're lifting this from Joyce. Heron's the one at the end that he's already, that he's trying to convince him back to the faith, right? No, no that's Crandall. That's, that's Crandall. Oh, Heron's earlier. That's yeah. Heron, they have a fight. They, they have two guys on one pushing him up to a wall, beating him, saying, admit that, that Byron is a heretic or an atheist okay, or something. Yeah, yeah right. And that Tennyson is better. Um, this argument about aesthetics is the only thing left to argue about. Yeah. Right? And uh, you'll notice that Heron has a walking stick. Uh, that you'll find that in the first scene of the Clockwork Orange by Cooper. So, uh, intertextuality, not only between books but between genres, is actually a pretty cool thing that we're going to see in the 20th and 21st century. Okay, the girl and sexuality are his conduits to aesthetic ecstasy, all right? Say that again. The girl on the strand, you know, when he has that epi epiphany, she, sexuality has been moved from the path to damnation and instead is now the path to liberation, all right? That's why the girl is connected with all that avian symbolism. Up we go. Our physical connection, which doesn't actually happen, but is what he sees her. And he's, he's, she's, he sees her as a desirable sexual object, which is understandable because his emotions are focused on that. He also sees the infinite sea and the sky and the birds moving away. The idea is that this is going to lead him up and outward. It's like Beatrice. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. <clears throat> or it's like the end of Faust. The eternal feminine leads us upward. But in that sense, Beatrice is a good. Oh, yeah. Really well, <laughs> yeah. well it, it, what, what this is, is a de-Christianized Beatrice. Mm -hmm. Or like Petrarch's Laura, the same idea. She's an image, but not an image of spiritual perfection. She's an image of carnality. Helen, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Well, no, she's not as wicked as that. Yeah, You have to allow for an innocence. Yeah, well, she, you don't know anything about this girl on the beach. Right, all we know is that she's picking up uh, shellfish. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know. But it doesn't... It's, it's hardly explicable. If you ever actually get a chance to go to, to Dublin, all these places are real, and all the cab drivers know them. Mm. I mean, it's amazing how literate um, the place Ireland really is. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but um, writers in Ireland don't pay taxes on their books. Wow. In other words, they invite them in, and you can live essentially for nothing in Ireland if you're a writer, wow. or at least no taxes. I mean, beer is expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, man does not live by bread alone. <laughs> but uh, writers don't have to pay taxes, on, at least on their writings, on, on their books. Wow. Yeah. Royalties, you know? yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. That's actually a pretty smart thing to do, actually. Or advances to, not just royalties. Yeah. 
So, so I mean, look, um, I get picked up because I used to go there fairly frequently. Uh, I still go, I don't go there anymore. But uh, often I'd be picked up by a, a cab driver. I asked him about Joyce, and he knew all the places. And uh, the last one I had didn't like Joyce at all. He says, "Where's the clarity here?" I mean, so uh, it's a very literary country. I mean, well, the thing is, they had everything taken from them, and it's a little bit like the condition of blacks in America. Um, blacks had everything taken from them, so they decided they want to take over American music and let everybody else know what music was here. <laughs> and the Irish decided to take over poetry and literature and say, look, if we can't have the Irish language, we're going to take yours. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what they did. No, think of it. Swift, Yeats, uh, Singe, uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, Swift. Uh, I mean, they're all Irish. Right? I mean, many of them are Protestant, and kind of Anglo-Irish, but um, the Irish took over English literature in the same way that blacks took over American music. I mean, American music is black music. It's true. All right. He decides that he's going to devote himself to art and life, and that this, what he's looking for is a this-worldly transcendence. Now the problem is that this worldly transcendence is a contradiction in terms, the best I'm able to understand it. I'm sorry, I'm thinking that Nietzsche would have said, you, you don't need transcendence, you need illusions. And That's right, love the earth, yeah. right? And if you can't love the earth all the time, then you can make up life-giving illusions, but don't think about anything that's not the earth. There was a moment in the book where the um, Daedalus lacks the courage to uh, either go up to his mother or uh, I forget the exact passage. It, but is it at the end of the Grammy? Yeah. And he's, he doesn't want to go back home to celebrate Mass with his mother because right. it's like it's, it's the non serviam I will not serve. Well, yeah. the, the thing is, is that Nietzsche would have gone to Mass and uh, had an orgy afterwards. Right, it's Cranley's point. I was like, look, just go make your mom happy, right? And, and, and Steve Which is saying. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, your mother's dying. I mean, how much does it cost you? No, I'm not going to do it on principle. And, and what is God going to judge you for this? What's the matter with you? Yeah, and then he's just sitting there making the like, you know, jokes about Cranley being like the product of uh, like exhausted loins and all that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so, so it's like, come on, again, like, Cranley's got a point here, and you're just sort of like getting way into the the birth psychology of eugenics, almost. <laughs> Good point. Uh, Cranley is often is the voice of reason in many respects. You know, he is what Joyce could have become if he hadn't taken this turn. And Joyce has become loveless. I think Stephen Dedalus has become loveless. I mean, we ordinarily have some residual feeling for your mother, and if she's dying at all, most people would have that milk of human kindness, which would allow you to do something, make some sort of gesture, not him. Yeah? You, I was thinking, you'd wonder if his call to the priesthood was even a valid one, seeing that his conversion came from like a, the Malambonum experience, not like a Suambonum experience, and whether his call to the priesthood was actually... Because he goes in depth about how, um, or he talks about how um, it's it's awful to reject your calling if you have a calling. It made me think of Pico from last class or last 
semester with Thomas More. Oh, you've but, written Pico. Yeah. Very yeah. Good. I didn't know you knew Pico. We, we read the, the Life of Pico. Life of Pico by Thomas More. Yeah, oh, not, okay. not, uh, you should read Pico's uh, uh, thing on the dignity of man, oration on the dignity we of man. Sections of it. Mm -hmm. That's a, a, a game changer because prior to that, we had been really evil and bad. <laughs> That's a twelve. <laughs> no, it's true. That's what makes it so changed. Yeah. It's completely yeah. anti-Augustinian. Oration on the dignity of man. Where'd you get the idea that people were dignified at all? <laughs> right. contrary to experience. That's the kind of thing you would get from the Renaissance, which yeah. is what makes it so you, uh, uh, unusual. You're aware that Pico was poisoned, right? Mm. There's a reason why Machiavelli has the uh, paranoia that he does. He was, po he was poisoned. He was poisoned to death, yeah, by his enemies. Huh. Didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, the. the did you, did you read in, in your more class or in your Renaissance reading any of you know Castiglione's book of the court here? Oh, yeah. You do? Yeah, we read it in Western Civ, I think. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what I showed you it was is very different from what it looked like it was. Okay. Yeah, we get the G. Yeah, you saw that too. That was messed up. What was it, what was it about? Um, it's, <laughs> it's not what it looks like. It's called the Book of the Court here, you say? Book of the Court here by Castiglione. Like on the surface, it's like ethics and yeah. of, of like what the courtier secretly, like, but it's secretly the story of how he he does a Machiavellian like take over. Uh, he seduced the Duchess. Seduced, yeah, well, the du the and this is all about that. So what it looks like is good advice for how to be a good courtier. Yeah. But everything can be read on the surface, and then there's another meaning yeah. that you can. It's well, this is one of those Straussian hidden meaning well, deals. What I hate about Strauss is that he's right half. <laughs> oh, well, in this case, I'm pretty sure that, that I've got it here. And, uh, yeah, it's about his, uh, his uh, connection to the Duchess. <laughs> so that's how politics really works. And once you realize that that's what Castiglione is like, you can see why Machiavelli thinks everybody's out to get him, because they are. I can't <laughs> trust any of these people. And the more, the smoother they are. Uh, Castiglione's favorite thing, he introduces this idea, which is so very Italian sprezzatura, which is the activity of making something very difficult appear effortless and easy. <laughs> I'm not working at this. <laughs> all right? Did you ever see his painting by Titian? First of all, this guy knows the good stuff. So I have one portrait, I'm going to have it done by Titian. Mm. All right? And then he's dressed perfectly. Not ostentatiously, but not ill-dressed either. A perfect, harmonious balance. So this is uh, this is a guy you got to watch out for, right? But he knows the good stuff too. He's an aesthete, and uh, well, look, I, this could be your first publication. You want to your PhD? I'll give you the stuff and go to work on it. But uh, this is actually a very—I mean, for those of you that have seen it, you know that I, I nailed that, right? And uh, yeah, this is sure. I'm happy to. I actually read a book on the reception of it, and nobody ever interpreted it the way I'm interpreting it either, which is very odd. That's really. Or I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> way. But, well, yeah, could be. <laughs> Let's go back to our friend here. All right. Um, Joyce is the bridge to the aesthetics of the 20th century. We are going to reject tradition out of hand. That's what 20th century art is about. It's about discontinuity. This is a novel that could not have been written in 1800. Mm. Right. 
this is a novel which is announcing the collapse of religion and other markers of cultural orientation. It should not come as a surprise that what you're going to see in a generation or so are things like the theater of the absurd, where we have become sufficiently sophisticated so that we can write plays that don't make any sense. Now you should read Ionesco's Rhinoceros. People are talking about fascism and about how bad politics is, and then every once in a while, people turn into rhinoceros. <laughs> now you may wonder, what does that mean? That's pretty much the idea. It's like Kafka, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what's the music of the time, too? Like, oh, the, yeah. the composers there. Okay, they, they, they oh, oh, okay. All right. First part of the 20th century, when this sort of thing is becoming popular, we are getting to the end of European of the, of the tradition of European classical music. European polyphony has run its course, and now they move to a new kind of music. It's called serialism or twelve-tone music. Right? They have given up on the natural octave, which sounds right to the human ear. If any of you have studied piano or studied even a little bit of music, um, there's something about the octave which seems complete and old. I don't know why. Okay, um, but mathematically, you don't need an eight-tone eight scale. A twelve-tone scale, including four semitones, is mathematically possible. And so what you get are intellectuals who start writing twelve-tone music because it's really hard to do and because it sounds very strange. Uh, what you get in this case is not music that's beautiful, what you get is music that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, I mean, if you listen to somebody like uh, Schoenberg mm-hmm. or Berg or Webern, if you know any of those 12-tone serialist composers, um, you can't help but say to yourself, no ordinary person would have strung sounds together in that fashion. You have to have an advanced graduate degree to say, wow, no one's ever made those tones connected. Do you want to play a little bit of it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, give us something dissonant. Yeah. Philip Glass. It puts you on edge. So cool. See, the tension doesn't get resolved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's all. That all comes out of Nietzsche. Meaning is gone. Well, that isn't actually all that surprising. Yeah. What do the sculptures of like Alexander Calder fall into? Um, what they are is a movement away from representational realism in the same, which is the same thing that's happening in, in painting. All right. Uh, Calder is is thinking about interesting ways of taking up space. But they have nothing organic in them. They're, I mean, if you see bodies, they're terribly twisted, and usually you don't see bodies. They're just odd forms. One of the great Alexander Calder uh, uh, 
sculpture, one of my favorite anyway, is called uh, Nuclear Energy. It's actually at the University of Chicago on the spot where they had the first nuclear chain reaction. And it's an amazing thing because it looks sort of like a face or a skull, but it also sort of looks like a mushroom cloud. Mm. It's an amazing, I mean, if you get a chance to look it up, yeah, there we go. Look at that thing, yeah. That's on the mm. spot where they, where they had the first atomic reaction. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. So, um, I would be tempted to say that 20th century art is deeply immersed and deeply uh, obligated to Nietzsche, all right? Art was liberated from the service to anything else. This is where we're going to get art for art's sake. Which you see on uh, Metro Golden Mayor, Ars Gratia Artists, mm -hmm. art for art's sake. There is no more important figure looming over the 20th and even now the 21st century than Nietzsche. He's everywhere. He's ubiquitous. All right. Uh, the assumptions we make. All right. For example, that all claims are perspectival. You see things. Nowadays, we talk about it on university campuses, not this one, but many. We talk about. It. I see it through a postmodern lens. Why don't you take a look at it <laughs> rather than seeing it through any kind of lens? But see, the point is everybody's looking through a lens because there's no reality because that died with God. If you don't have the mind of God for reality to be in, then there's only an infinite number of perspectives. And that means that there's no matter of fact and no truth. So how are we going to deal with this superabundance of meaningless stuff? And the answer is by artistically arranging our lives and by generating artworks that redeem us. You see, the problem is you still have the idea that we need redemption, but you don't have Jesus around to do it. Mm. So instead, Guernica is going to redeem you. Well, I don't know. Or we see political redemption. Well, again, political redemption. Again, my argument would be that all of these small groups that are looking for political redemption are all Gnosticism. They're all Gnostic groups that don't know who they are or what they're doing because they, their higher education has failed them. They weren't taught the Western tradition. So they think they've made all this stuff up new. Let me give you an example, something like Amnesty International. They don't want people to get tortured. I'm okay with that. That sounds like a good thing. But the kind of anxious 20-somethings that belong to this don't seem to realize that it's a Christian cult. They think, aha, I've thought this up new. Well, you ask them, why shouldn't people be tortured? And then you either get a dull stare, because they can't, they've actually never thought about that, or you get, well, because it's wrong, and if you ask them why, it's because they feel that way. Or it's a kind of arbitrary decision that they made, kind of a Nietzschean flip of the coin. This is the price you pay for losing Christianity. You're unable to make any intelligent response to why should we take this seriously? Or as it is in Dostoevsky, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. So why should I care about whether people get tortured or not? Mm -hmm. All, yeah. The crazy thing is that Nietzsche 
So of course it is said that the next for the next two hundred years people will oscillate between totalitarianism and I think it was either anarchy or uh, soft totalitarianism. Right. Nihilism, and, yeah. nihilism of various descriptions. Right. Yeah. Which is the 20th century. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're not unrelated, of course. Right. Um, once you lose the idea of salvation through religion, salvation in this world becomes very tempting. The problem is it's impossible. And when you try and get salvation from Politics. What it does is make you fanatical and turn you into the first the Puritans, and then it turns you into the uh, uh, to the Jacobins, and then it turns you into the Bolsheviks, and then it turns you into uh, Camus Rouge or the Red Guard during uh, the Cultural Revolution, and now it's turning people into Antifa. I don't know if you know who Antifa is. They're the kind of radical lefties who want to pick street fights with radical right-wing nut bars. Well, here's, here's, what, here's what I don't like. Uh, there was recently a very large demonstration in Virginia about Second Amendment rights. Yeah, Antifa was there. They really liked the idea of gun rights. And I think all of this is going to work out well. But there's nobody I want to see armed to the teeth more than people that cover their faces up and are anarchists. I mean, this is going to be awful. So what they're looking for is not just street battles, but an armed street conflict. It's horseshoe theory. It's yeah. very dangerous. The right wingers and the left wingers. That's right, exactly. Well, look, I'm I'm happy with putting them all on some island. Let them shoot each other. <laughs> I will supply them with weapons. <laughs> all right. No, because I don't want to share the same political space. I don't want to share the same time zone with these people. <laughs> right. And now I have to have you in my politics. No, I don't. I mean, I want both major parties to freeze out the crackpots and their dangerous loons who are a threat to both sides. God help us all. There is no political solution to the problems of human beings, and yet this becomes very tempting once we lose a religious orientation. Joyce was not only self-respecting enough not to become a Protestant, but he was also self sufficiently self-respecting not to think, ah, I can find salvation in political movements, <laughs> right? Salvation is never going to be gotten through politics. The reason why is that if you want to engage in practical politics, you cannot do that without getting your hands dirty. It's just, that's the way it works. If you want to save your soul, go to a monastery. If you want to change legislation, you can go to Washington. But like they say, the dyer's hand that turns blue as well as the cloth. Right, get used to that fact. So that, that's why I you brought that up. So that in my presentation, he said socialism is the is the idea to create a heaven upon earth. And that's that's exactly right. That's exactly the right. The absence of yeah, Well, Nietzsche was right when he says that. Look, all egalitarian political movements, including socialism, feminism representative democracy, um, they're all disguised Christianity. And he's right about that. Who said that? Nietzsche did. Oh. Right? He said, look, all egalitarianism of every description right, is Christian. And he said, you really haven't gotten rid of Christianity until you've gotten rid of this idea of human equality. Some people are superior to others. The Greeks affirmed that. And Nietzsche says, I just go a little further than most. I figure half a dozen out of every million, or something like that. 
the one group you said before that tries to stop torture? Uh, Amnesty. Amnesty International. That's a Christian cult. And actually, I'm perfectly happy with it if they help people not get tortured. I mean, you know, what's not to like? They don't understand why they're, you know, if you ask them why, you get nonsense from them. Uh, a, a good example would be something like, I'll get you in a second. 2016, somebody asked Bernie Sanders why it is that you think people uh, health care is a right. And he answered, because they're human, which explains absolutely nothing. <laughs> I mean, it explains zero. All right. Um, it's a human right to get health care, and the reason why it's a human right is because they're human. This is passing for thinking. He may get the nomination. Right? Um, the problem there is not that people shouldn't get health care. I actually think it's a, it's a Christian moral obligation. Uh, I can't stand the possibility of you know, us having bandages and not giving them to people that are bleeding. But when he asked me, I say it's because God wants us to. He has to say, well, because they're human. Now, you may or may not believe in God, whereas pretty much everybody believes in humans, but because they're human explains no reason why, nothing about why I should help them out. All right? You're, bring, you're smuggling in Christian assumptions there, monotheistic assumptions. And what I'd just like to see him do is, is fess up, step up and say, look, I come from a monotheistic tradition where we don't let that happen to people. And I think 80% of America would go, yeah, pretty much that's true. Right? But he can't do that because there he's stepping into religion. But the problem is he's been in religion all along. Right. So uh, that's one of the, the difficulties. When you abolish religion, you're going to have to invent something to take its place, like art or uh, various kinds of political movements. And then you're going to explain what they do and how they do it in very inadequate ways. I mean, remember that once you get rid of God, and once you get rid of Christianity, you also get rid of human equality. There is no empirical justification for their claim that people are equal. I mean, there aren't even two identical snowflakes. Your blasted fingerprints are all unequal, much less the rest of you. So one of the things that we lose when we lose uh, religion and that religious transcendence, we lose the idea of human equality. And you know where that leads. That's the politics of the 20th century. We fought so hard to hold on to human equality, I'm really kind of attached to it. And it's one of the things that I like most about Jesus is that he's pretty much the source of human equality, right? Because you've got to remember, compared to God's infinite majesty, all human differences shrink in significance. Jesus doesn't care if you won at the Olympics because fast bugs like humans are not, for him, greatly significant, greatly different from slow bugs. Yeah? There are some... Here's the deal. Um, if you don't have uh, God the Father, then you don't have the brotherhood of man. No brothers without a father. Once you got rid of God the Father, you also lost the brotherhood of man. And then it's a Darwinian struggle where big fish eat little fish, and you get the ethos of Achilles and the, the Melian dialogue.
Isn't it nice the way things all come together when we finally get to the end of this process? I mean, you can see how this links up with what you've learned before. This is the last stop in Nietzschean aestheticism. This is, well, actually not the last stop. It's the first great landmark in Nietzschean aestheticism. All right? And it's not an accident that in his next novel, he's going to go back to Homer. Mm. Of course he is, since Nietzsche was an advocate for Homer against Plato and Socrates. So he's going to retell Ulysses in one day, and it's an extraordinary book. I mean, I spent a whole summer on that book because there's no other way to, to break through it. And I did it with two other guys that were also equally kind of hardcore. And so we spent a whole summer on it. Joyce is just amazing, the stuff that goes on there. He's a real word wizard. That's something you should take a look at when you get the chance. And the other great novelist of the 20th century is going to be Thomas Mann. Mm -hmm. He's the German analog of that. He actually writes about 12-tone music. Those of you who have read... Uh, is Mann Nietzschean? Oh, well, he's anti-Nietzschean. He says, oh, I've had enough of this. <laughs> he's, living through, he's living through the Second World War, and he said, look, I have had more than enough of this. What, what was the, the quote that you said about Nietzsche? You said when you said he predicted something. Oh, he predicted that for the next 200 years, all world societies would oscillate between totalitarianism and nihilism. Mm -hmm. And he was right, which sucks. All the world, you said? Yeah, the whole world. I, that's not an exact quote, but it's yeah. Um, yeah, he's plunging the world into chaos and darkness, and he thinks something interesting and fertile. His argument is that we've done this to ourselves by denying God. And he's just diagnosing the problem. And we're just reverting back there to our original condition, which is much better than that monotheistic illusion anyway. Polytheism for the masses. There we go. Yeah. All right. Now, Nietzsche is, is everywhere. He saturates Western culture. What we're looking at next class is Max Weber. And here's why Max Weber is a Nietzschean, like everybody else. Weber, first of all, is writing in German. So his culture has the greatest direct access to Nietzsche. He's going to introduce a new and important idea in the West. This idea is called, actually, it's a radicalization of an idea you have already seen. He's going to introduce the distinction between facts and values. You may have heard that there are facts about the world and there are values. Facts are objective, values are subjective. So it may be a fact that someone is torturing somebody else. It is a value to say that is a wicked thing. This would be the is and the all. And we know where that comes from. Yes, indeed. This is Hume all over again. Factual statements about the world could be inductive or deductive, which means that knowledge is value-free. This is a, lo a logical but truncated account of rationality. You're right. Absolutely right. Uh, Plato, like the Germans, goes for teleological reasons. Uh, 
Max Weber, like the Anglo-American tradition, goes for a smaller version of reason. This is what I would call instrumental reason. Hume said, uh, reason is the slave of the passions. Your passions tell you what end you're going to achieve, and then your reasons tell you how to, your reason tell you how, tells you how to get it. So if you have a desire, a passion for a hamburger, your reason tells you go to McDonald's. If you have a desire for a book, your reason tells you go to the library. But reason, in this, under this view, can't tell you what end you want to achieve. There's a larger version of reason that we get from Kant, and Kant. <laughs> <laughs> I said the magic word. <laughs> and this larger, this larger version of reason is, allows you to discern ends and means. And the end you're supposed to achieve is rational obedience to reason itself via the categorical imperative. So the question of whether reason can disclose ends or whether it's restricted to means is actually a very, is, is an issue pregnant with very heavy and important philosophical possibilities. What we're going to see in the 20th century is one of the odd things that we'll see with A.J. Ayer too, along with Weber, that increasingly Anglo-American ideas like this Humean, remember Hume's fork at the end of the inquiry? You know, it's either induction or deduction or burn it. Okay, well these ideas start to drift over across the English Channel, and they get picked up by guys like the members of the Vienna Circle, or uh, uh, A.J. Ayer, or in this case, Weber. All right. So they said, look, um, we lost Kant because we lost metaphysics and we lost God. So it looks like that extended conception of reason won't work anymore. We're going to go to the more limited, the more uh, modest account of reason that the English are going to use. Yeah, it does. And so that's why uh, A.J. Ayer is essentially rewriting the last chapter of Hume's inquiry. Uh, the thing is, that Kant shot himself in the foot with this because he, although he said that we can't have moral reasons, he said that speculative reason is uh, absurdly limited. Uh, well, hold on. What, what makes it absurdly limited? The, so, fiction scientists will say that you can't set a limit to thought, except oh, you can't set a limit to thought without thinking outside the limit of mm-hmm. and okay. Kant tries to set a limit to thought. Okay, yeah. All of the great system builders uh, on the continent, they're all trying to create a model of the mind of God. In other words, their, God, their mind is going to be a little version of God's big mind. Whereas the Englishman just you know, given up on that and said, look, I'm trying to figure out how to get out of the room. <laughs> I'd like to figure out how to get the waitress to bring me another beer. <laughs> right. right, there we are. Let me out of the flyby. Right. They, they have more restricted ambitions. All right. Um, I was thinking about your argument that Kant was a, a skeptic, and I don't know. I mean, um, particularly because he's, he's, he's juxtaposed against Hume, who's a real skeptic. This is true. No, he's, he's not Hume, but... He, the thing is, is that he accepts Hume's fork to some extent, and that, but then just says, but we can, have, well, we can still talk about morals, guys. Well, fortunately for us, it's still bad to tell lies. Um, but uh, Kant is, I mean, uh, the sense that I come away with is that the reason you think Kant is a skeptic is because he doesn't give you the juice that you, that you get from scholasticism that you want him to give you. 
that's right. Fair. Stuff like where he says uh, being is in the predicate. Right, well, it's not just that. It's that when Nietzsche says that all that we have is appearances, that's very Kantian. Mm, sort of, yeah. I mean, yeah. He's, I mean, he's, re he's rejected the a priori forms. He's pushing it in a way that Kant would have said. This is true, but it, it's it's still he's, he's appealing to the Kantian consensus of the European intellectual. There's a good book called uh, The German Mind, A uh, Philosophical Diagnosis. Who's that guy? Saviana. Oh, uh -huh. I will read that. It's really great. <laughs> I have it in my office. It's really great. No, he lays it out. He flogs him. I mean, everybody's going to get a good meeting for Santiana. You should write him down because he's one of the he, he has one of the best English prose styles of anybody I've ever read. Really beautiful. And when he gets angry, he's really right on the money. <laughs> and he's like the one who's like those who do not remember the past are going to repeat it. That's right. There we go. All right, here's the deal. Who's presenting Weber next week? That's me. Right, so you're doing both of them or one? I have both. Both of them, okay. Um, let's do, uh, so which one do you want to do first? Politics as a vocation? Politics. All right, politics as a vocation, and then uh, science as a vocation. I just had a side question that yeah. I have booked. So I was listening to a podcast today, and I wanted to bring this up yesterday, and I, he said that 36% of millennials are in support of communism. Why do you think that is? Because they never, they and, weren't taught history in school. Yes, I was. That's the exact answer he gave. But and because everybody wants something for nothing, that's how you get elected <clears> in the machine. You promise people something that somebody else is going to pay for. Right now, these young people are not paying taxes at this point, and they would like something for free, like college. And uh, it turns out then that everybody else gets hosed, and that we add to the debt that we still can't pay. So uh, it's not surprising. Um, the way you get elected is by promising something for nothing. It is not. Pay for the wall. It's not until yeah. It's not until you become an adult that it dawns on you that there's no such thing as something for nothing, and that everything that's going to be distributed for free is in fact going to be paid for by you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, what politicians are doing is bribing you with your own money. <laughs> and we go. That, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I mean, no, that's what's going on there, all right? I'm going to take your money from it. I'm going to give you some of it back. Some. Right, some of it is right. Some of it gets eaten up in the, you know, in the bureaucracy. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, it's bad enough to get bribed, but uh, <laughs> take it out of your wallet and say, here, this is for you. Oh, here, no, I'm going to keep a few, and then you can have it back. I'll give I mean, you more of it back. Right, yeah, right. God help us all. Um, my fear is that Mr. Trump's impeachment is actually going to get him reelected, and that Bernie Sanders is and Ocasio Cortez are the head of the Trump reelection committee and don't know it. <laughs> and, and I have to admit that makes me want to bang my head on the table. No, come on. We have, at least in my lifetime, we have not had anyone so completely improper for high political office. I mean, no, I mean, I don't want a tweet war between him and the hooker or the porn star about um, his sex life. No, I don't need, I and 20 million other people don't need to know about this. Since after all, he's supposed to be running the country. He, he's gotten a lot of uh, bonus points from the Republicans for showing up to March for Life recently, but he showed up and lied four times in his short speech. Look, he spent his whole life, 
seducing women. No, he remember he spent his whole life seducing women and selling real estate. Neither of those activities um, helped him become honest. Right? He lies and lies and lies. And the problem is, is that he may be the better of the alternatives, which means that you know I can't vote yeah, anymore. I, uh, yeah. God help us all. Yes. So uh, a somewhat hot take I have is that um, the fact that. Uh, we always read dystopias where it's a very smart authoritarianism. <laughs> I think that our much more likely future is idiocracy. Our culture is simply not prepared ourselves for the fact that we are truly governed by idiots and we will be governed by idiots until the end of time. Well, no. aren't, you, aren't you paraphrasing the Republic? Yeah. Oh. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Alcibiades. Well, I mean, we don't have anybody that's as interesting as Alcibiades. Yeah. Right? We just have one pig at the trough after another. I mean, how many how many people named Biden have become really rich by doing nothing? I mean, so yeah, we live in a very corrupt time. I can't figure out whether we're living in Weimar Germany or late Imperial Rome, but I don't like the looks of either. That being said, um, the atmosphere of Weimar, aestheticism, yeah, the 20s and 30s. Here's the deal. We're going to talk about Weber next week, and if I have the time, this is something I've wanted to do for you, I will show you that mysterious thing I promised you about how political party systems work. Mm -hmm. So if you break out half an hour or an hour, if we can find it, um, I will show you how all of them and also why we have the political party system that we do, and why everybody else has the political party system that they do. Hmm. Which is sort of interesting. I, I worked this out when I was about 25. And, uh, yeah. So, we'll see. That being said, I'll see you all next week. Good God. Jump over the four lies. Look at some holes. Over the four lies. The lies that you're saying in the speech. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. Would you send, would you send uh, those uh, things, the papers, just like different the copies to what the, 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 the student list that I gave you? So